Aren't you so grateful that Christ is indeed our sure and steady anchor? As we face all of the trials that we face in life, it is a great privilege to gather together on Sunday mornings and to sing with you. We sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to encourage you. It is to your benefit to hear the people around you singing of their great confidence in God. Even when we cross that great horizon, that song that we sung earlier talks about, even at the moment of death, Christ is still our sure and our steady anchor. That's a great comfort to us, one that we are wise to sing often and remind ourselves of carefully. Now I'd like you to take your left hand and stick it out like this here in front of you. We're going to sing together this morning. So stick out your left hand like this. We're going to clap and we're going to sing together. Some of you are good at this. Some of you are still learning. And uh, that's fine. Remember that it is a rhythm of six. You're going to clap the person's hand on your right. Then your right leg, your left leg, bottom of your hand, top, twice. Your hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up down twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg. Good. That's good. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. There is only one God, there is only one King, there is only one body, that is why we sing. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that can be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. Very good. Very good. We start slow and end that song fast. I'm not sure why. Some of you are just trying to get it over with. That's We just want to be done so we can stop. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 16 is where I want to direct your attention this morning, 2 Samuel 16. We're going to look, uh, remember that um, 2 Samuel 16 is your, is your turning there. I'll remind you, last week we followed David as he began his flight from Jerusalem. He's on the run from his son Absalom, his traitorous son Absalom, who's leading an army into the city. David flees. And uh, we know, we know because we've been reading this book, that this is part of the discipline of God for David's great and grievous sin. But we also have learned last week that this crisis seems to awaken within David the, uh, the faith and the courage and the confidence that he, let, that he had before. Uh, David was on the run. We spent a long time in Sam, 1 Samuel with David on the run. Now he's on the run again, and the old David is back. We see him uh, walking while he's running faithfully with God. Now, let's read here. Uh, well, two more, one more thing to just orient you again to the text. As David runs, there's five conversations recorded uh, that he has with people. We talked about three of them last week. Ittai the Hittite, uh, and then there was Zadok, Zadok the priest, and Hushai his friend. So he had those three conversations. Now he's going to have two more, uh, one having to do with Ziba, 
and the other having to do with Shimei. So now we're going to read these two conversations, chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. So follow along in your copy of Scripture. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who have become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, where's your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, he is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. As King David approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, uh, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you murderer! You scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does that have to do with you, the sons of Zeruah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David said, then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposing him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. When we start planning for Man U, our annual Friday night for men, uh, event for men, uh, Scott and I think about some of the themes that, uh, in particular, challenges that the Bible sets forth for men. And I think sometimes the, the themes overlap. I think we've talked about strength and courage in some form or another five or six times. This past January, we talked about a topic that we haven't talked about before. Uh, we talked about forgiveness. Uh, forgiveness and all the things that are particularly involved in it is one of the most persistent pastoral problems that uh, people speak to me about. They have a lot of questions about uh, what, are, what are the mechanics of forgiveness look like and how do I think about consequences or uh, what do we think about the, the emotional, how do I bear these emotional costs? Forgiveness actually also happens to be one of the most persistent parental problems that I speak to my children about. Your brother and sister are the first people whom you will learn from about love and about conflict and about forgiveness. They're the first people that you'll end up apologizing to in your life. Whether you like it or not, you will say those words, won't you? I'm sorry. 
We human beings, we have a, a seemingly unlimited ability to provoke one another. We trouble one another. We antagonize one another. We vex one another in hundreds of ways. I came across a letter that was written uh, not too long ago from one neighbor to another. Uh, Bob wrote this letter to his neighbor, Frank, and then he dropped it in the mail. Listen to what the letter says. Dear Frank, we've been neighbors for six tumultuous years. When you borrowed my tiller, you returned it in pieces. When I was sick, you blasted rap music. And when your dog went to the bathroom all over my lawn, you laughed. I could go on, but I'm certainly not one to hold grudges. So I'm writing you this letter to tell you that your house is on fire. Cordially, Bob. We provoke one another. And sometimes we handle that really well, and sometimes we don't handle it very well. I want you to turn with me to this passage of Scripture that we have that we just read this morning because I want some help here in this. From these conversations, I want to extract some principles, three of them, that I think will help you with the vexing people in your life. The principles flow from one another, so I'm just going to explain, all, I'm going to state all three of them, and then we'll look at them in more specific detail as we move on this morning. So the, the, the first one is, you don't have as much control or, or even influence in the lives of other people that you want to. You wish that you had more control over those people that are vexing you. You wish you could say more to them. You wish you could change them. You wish you understood them better than you do. And, but you don't. You don't have as much control as you want. But secondly, we're going to look at the fact that God does have that much control, and he has purposes that he is going to accomplish. God, he, you don't have the control that God does. And in the midst of the control that God exerts, he has his own purposes, good purposes, that he's going to accomplish. Because you don't have the control that God does. So third, we're going to talk about the fact that we turn to him for mercy in the midst of these troubling situations. You can't control things like you want, but God does have that control and he has purposes in mind. So we look to him for mercy in the midst of what vexes us or who vexes us, perhaps. Well, uh, let's talk about these one at a time. So first, you don't have as much control as you want to. David's on the run in this passage, and just as he comes up over the Mount of Olives, the text tells us he runs into Ziba. Do you remember Ziba? Where have we seen Ziba before? Ziba is from the household of Saul. So Saul was the king before David. And Ziba was a steward in the house of Saul. Saul had a son, we've talked about this, whose name was Jonathan. And David and Jonathan were great friends. And before Jonathan died, David made him a promise. David said, when I am king, I will take care of your family members. So when David became king, he made a search. Are there any descendants of Jonathan left? Is there anybody left uh, from Jonathan's family to whom I can show mercy? And he found uh, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth had been dropped as a baby and was, uh, had, uh, uh, was lame in his feet. He was disabled because of the damage from that fall. Uh, um, David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. He took all of Saul's possessions and he gave them to Mephibosheth. And he said to Ziba, he's still alive, he said, Ziba, you manage all of these possessions for Mephibosheth. And he invited Mephibosheth to come into his home and live. Uh, into David's home, into the palace. He ate dinner at David's table. 
Now, uh, Ziba, David's on the run, and he meets Ziba. So there's Ziba there with all of these provisions. It's wonderful. God is in the process of caring for David even as he's running. That's, that's an, an important point that this passage makes, that, that God, notice in this passage, God doesn't immediately overturn the situation. He doesn't immediately send David back to the city. But as he's running, God is providing for him, and he's doing it through Ziba. It's great. God's kindness. God's kindness. What's interesting about this chapter is as David is on the run, there's a lot of parallels between this chapter and uh, way back in 1 Samuel 25 and 26. We're going to look at a verse there. But uh, the gifts that Ziba brings to David are almost identical to the gifts that Abigail brings to David too. So Abigail, this godly, wonderful woman in the, in the, earlier in the book, and Ziba, they're paired together in this, this book as God meeting David's needs. Now, there's a shadow in the text, though. Do you notice that verse 3? It says, Where's your master's grandson? Where's Mephibosheth? Why isn't he with you to bring me these provisions? And Ziba said to him, He's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, Today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Oh, Mephibosheth apparently, according to Ziba, has no loyalty to David at all, and he's just waiting for the opportunity to, gr- to grab the throne on behalf of his grandfather Saul. Well, David will have none of that. He said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. He gives all these possessions that were sold to Ziba, and Ziba says, oh, I bow. I think he's obsequious. I think he's smarmy. I'll tell you why in a minute. But, uh, 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 as far as David knows, at this point in time, right now, Ziba is loyal and Mephibosheth is disloyal and David rewards Dave, uh, Ziba's loyalty. But, oh, but, turn with me over to 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse, I think, 24. I'll tell you when we get there. Look at 2 Samuel, just a couple pages over. This is at the end when David has won and he's back in the city. All right, so in 16, he's on the run. In 19, he's back. And look at verse 24, and, and, and uh, let's consider what's happening here. Mephibosheth, verse 24 of chapter 19, Saul's grandson also went down to meet the king, to meet David when he returns. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king, is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king, but you gave your servant, me, a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, Why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. Uh, so David doesn't know who's, who's telling the truth here. Is it Ziba or is it Mephibosheth? So he splits the property in two. I don't know if this is intentional or not, but it reminds me of Solomon who wanted to split a baby in two, right? He gets wisdom from his father. Well, let's just read the next. Verse 30, Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything now, everything now that my lord the king has returned home safely. So, well, who do you believe? 
You have all the evidence in front of you that we have. Who is telling the truth in this situation? Is it Ziba or is it Mephibosheth? Well, uh, I have an opinion. I'll tell you my opinion, and then I'll tell you why it matters. You don't have to agree with me, but I'll, I'll tell you who I think is telling the truth. I think that uh, Ziba is lying about this. Um, and, and I have two reasons for believing so. The first reason I think Ziba is lying is because I don't think it's realistic to believe that uh, Mephibosheth is hoping to become king. It just seems strange to me that in the midst of this civil war that's going on in David's household that they're suddenly going to turn to Mephibosheth to solve the problem. It just doesn't seem realistic to me. So use your imagination here, all right? Just use your imagination that Ivanka Trump leads a revolt against her father, okay? And do you think that the Republican-controlled Congress is going to hand the presidency to Hillary Clinton if that happens? Okay, some of you are fantasizing about that, but I don't think that's going to happen, right? I don't think that she would be the, the go-to person in the midst of, of political chaos. And I don't think Mephibosheth... Is, is foolish enough to believe that he's going to be the go-to guy. The other reason that I don't believe Ziba is because there is, there is some sort of objective evidence in Mephibosheth's condition. Remember the text tells us he didn't wash his feet, he didn't shave his uh, mustache, and he didn't change his clothes. Well, how long is his mustache and how stanky are his feet? Right? There's, there's some, some physical evidence that shows that Mephibosheth has been in mourning... And has he, has he been in mourning as many days as David has been gone? So follow me here. If he thinks he's going to be made king, he's going to dress in his best every day for the day they come to coronate him. But if, he, if he's mourning, he's going to be stinky for a long time. So I, that's my inclination. But I don't know who's telling you. You can disagree with me. But the point of the story, the point of this interchange is to tell us, to emphasize to us, how truly perilous David's condition is. The reason that David in chapter 16 is in trouble is because he's on the run and around him are people who are selfish and are only in it for themselves. They are driven by their own self-interest. Remember, uh, we talked about Ahithophel. We'll, We'll talk about him more in the future. Ahithophel, David's former advisor, has switched sides. He's on Absalom's team. Ziba is scheming. Um, Mephibosheth is ingratiating himself. David has some friends, and those friends are very important. But even more so, David is surrounded by self-interested and self-motivated people. He does not have the control that a king in a crisis would want, and you don't have that level of control either. You are not the master of your marriage that you think you are. You don't have the sovereign control of the hearts of your children like you think you should or like you wish you had. You don't control the lives of your friends or your siblings like you wish you could. You you should understand this because the level of control that you exert in a situation is is a a, a function of the, the, uh, the level of knowledge that you have. And, and you don't know enough to have a controlling influence in those relationships. How many times has it happened to you that you've been stopped short because you've jumped to conclusions about someone's motives or what they were trying to communicate by what they said or what they didn't say? 
Some of you, you err because you are convinced that in every situation you know exactly what people are thinking, you know exactly what's motivating them, and you know exactly what they should do. And if they would just listen to you, then everything would be perfect. But you don't have the knowledge and you don't have the control that you think you have or that you want to have. John Wesley said this, When I was young, I was sure of everything. In a few years, having been mistaken a thousand times, I was not half so sure of most things as I was before. At present, I am hardly sure of anything but what God has revealed to me. Uh, Two imaginary diary entries. Listen to this. This is a diary entry of a wife and her husband. So here's the wife's diary entry. Tonight, my husband was acting weird. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested that we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset. That had nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. When we got home, he just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed. But I still feel that he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I don't know what to do. This is the husband's diary from that day. Rough day. Boat wouldn't start. Can't figure out why. There's a lot of wisdom in this, isn't there? Right? She's trying to figure this out. There's nothing to figure out, but she's sure there is. Right? You don't have the level of control that you think you have because you don't know everything like you think you do. That's why we approach every situation that we're in with humility and with compassion. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love believes all things. That is, it's oriented to other people with compassion and with willingness to believe the best, not the worst about them. So you don't have control that you think you want to have. But secondly here, God does have control and he accomplishes all of his purposes. He accomplishes all his purposes. God has purposes for every relationship. Often, sometimes, frankly, those purposes puzzle me. But there, there, is, a, there is a calm, there is a, a peace that comes from the purposefulness of Almighty God. You might not know why or, or, or what's going to happen in the midst of a, a situation or what God is doing or what he might be. But there is a purposefulness to it and a sense of calm comes because of it. Well, let's talk about Shimei. Shimei. Now, Shimei is a blood relative of Saul, the former king, and he's angry. Here's actually another one of the signs that David doesn't have the control that he wants. David has been king at this point in time for about 30 years, and he's been a good king. He's been a very successful king. And, and you would think that everybody in the kingdom would love him, but not Shimei. Shimei is still very angry. You can tell that he is angry because he does something so incredibly stupid. He, while David is running, he, he, uh, uh, Shimei attacks the king with words and with rocks. 
So they're separated somehow, maybe by a ravine, or maybe David is down in a valley and Shimei is up a little bit higher. There's some sort of separation, but close enough that Shimei can throw rocks and dirt on everybody down there and so that he can curse them. So the rocks are flying in an imitation of the Old Testament requirement that the community stone the guilty. Shimei is stoning David and all of his companions. And he curses David. He calls down God's judgment. God damn you, David, for what you've done. Shimei means in all of its theological richness to call down God's curse on David. On the one hand, uh, uh, Shimei is right to call David a murderer. Is David a murderer? Absolutely, David is a murderer. David has plotted to kill Uriah the Hittite and soldiers around him. Uh, David plotted to have them killed. David is a murderer. Um, but But Shimei is not right. He's not right about David's role in the death of the family of Saul. That's, that's what he's so mad at. Verse 8, the Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul. David went out of his way to save Saul's life and to save the lives of, of Saul's relatives. So Shimei is, is right that David's a murderer, but he's wrong about in the circumstances in which he is guilty of murder. And then verse 9, Abishai... <laughs> Abishai, the son of Zeruah. Do you remember that Abishai is one of David's nephews? There were three of them. Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Those three of them. Azahel's dead. Joab is the commander of David's army. And here's Abishai, his brother. These, this is the Huey, Louie, and Dewey of the Old Testament. All right, These three brothers. And Abishai is... They're, they're violent. They're impetuous. And, and Abishai in verse 9 says, Well, I'll just go cut off his head. Now, if you were David in this situation and in front of your struggling family as you're running from your traitorous son, uh, if somebody were cursing you and throwing stones, what would you tell Abishai to do? Go ahead, man. Take it off. Right? But David, actually, this is the second time David has to tell Abishai not to kill someone. It happens back in 1 Samuel 26. Abishai says, I'll go spear Saul. It will solve all your problems. And, and David says at that point, Abishai, put your spear away, okay? Don't, don't do that. And, and he does the same thing here. He, he tells Abishai not, not to kill Shimei. And, and I, there's two things that are controlling David's thinking at this point in time. On the one hand, he's got bigger problems. He's thinking about that. Verse 11 says, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. I mean, what? I got bigger problems than Shimei. We're not going to bother with Shimei. I got to worry about Absalom at this point in time. But the second thing that I think David is, is controlling his thinking is he is thinking about God's purposes and the working out of God's purposes. Now, um, follow me here. David is, well... The Bible tells us that God works in grand and massive scales to accomplish his will. He, he works in, on the battlefield in big ways. He works in the sky with the clouds in magnificently huge ways. And God works in very small ways in the minds and hearts of people. And David believes here that Shimei's curse 
may actually be part of God's discipline, which he knows he deserves. Uh, Verse 11 says, Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Strange. Strange. Something similar, I think, happens uh, back in 1 Samuel 26, verse 19, with Saul. I I wrote the... um, I didn't write it down. Turn back with me to First uh, Samuel chapter 26. All right, First Samuel. Turn back with me to First Samuel chapter 26. Just a few pages back, David here is on the run from Saul, and he's thinking about why Saul is chasing him, and he he goes to talk to David about this in First Samuel chapter 26, verse 19. He says. Now let my Lord the King listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. This is very strange. How can it be that David is thinking that God is at work at Saul's life, so that Saul wants to kill David? This is very strange. David thinks to himself, it is completely irrational that Saul wants to kill me. There's no reason why Saul would want to kill me. So something's got to be going on. And either it is the Lord that has incited him to do this, that God's working in Saul's mind and heart to do this, or it's people that have lied to him about me. One of those two things has got to be going on. So on the one hand, he thinks about Saul. God's inciting him. It's got to be it. And he's thinking here about Shimei. The Lord must have told him to do this to me. I think that's astounding that David is thinking about God's purposes in the midst of all of this trouble that he's having. First of all, I think to myself, how can it be that that God would incite Saul to attack David? (laughs) That doesn't seem to make much sense, except it may be part of God's judgment on Saul. uh, Saul's obsession with killing David shows the people that Saul's not fit to be king, and God brought that about. David knows in his, about God's deep down work in the hearts and minds of people to accomplish his purposes. He uh, 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 incites Saul to attack him. He commands Shimei to curse him. In the book of Exodus, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. And in all three cases, God here is working out his purposes in the lives of his people. And that is what is controlling David's response here. He doesn't punch back at Shimei. You don't have to punch back. You you don't have to defend yourself every time. You don't have to take everything personally or so seriously or so earnestly. You can let things go. You can rest in God's purposefulness even if you don't understand David seems, he, David seems to have a decent idea about why God is sent Shimei, and maybe he thinks about, has thought about why God has, has, had previously allowed Saul to, to, to chase after him or incited Saul to, to try to kill him. Uh, you may not have all the clarity uh, about the vexing people in your lives, about the purposes that God is bringing out, but you can still rest in the fact that God is purposeful and is accomplishing something in your life through this vexing, antagonistic, problematic situation. Some of you, you're just distracted by the fact that uh, all you can think about is, how could she do that to me? Or how could he do that to me? 
or uh, you're reveling in your pain or all you're thinking about is the trouble and you're not thinking about God's purposes in the situation. Remember George Mundell was an old Bible teacher. I think he was from Pennsylvania. And he used to say, I must see every person or circumstance that enters my life as the Holy Spirit coming to me in that person or circumstance in order to make me more like the Lord Jesus. I must see every person or circumstance that enters my life as the Holy Spirit coming to me through that person or circumstance in order to make me more like the Lord Jesus. And when you consider and remember that purposefulness, it measures your response. It doesn't mean that you don't do anything. It doesn't mean that you're just passive. But it should should control what you do and what you say. Uh, God is accomplishing at any situation multiple purposes in any moment, in any situation across the lives of dozens of people. You don't have to correct every error. You don't have to fix everything. You can't even, but God can. Just because you cannot control everything doesn't mean that there is no control. There's nothing that happens to you that doesn't surprise God. There's no events that are outside of His control. They're outside of your control. but They're not outside of His. And because they're not outside of God's control, number three, we're going to move on here. We trust in God's mercy. We trust in God's mercy. Shimei was apparently commanded by God to curse David. Apparently David believes that. But David knows that Shimei has gone too far or has gone in the wrong direction. He's wrong about the reasons that that God is cursing David. Now this this is kind of complicated, so follow me here. Even though Shimei is cursing him, David is trusting in God's mercy. God commanded Shimei to curse me, but I'm still trusting in God to show me kindness. Look at at verse um, 12, I think. Yes, verse 12. Even in the midst of hearing this cursing, it may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. I'm suffering in the hands of Shimei, but I'm trusting in God to show me kindness. He said something similar back in chapter 15, verse uh, 12, not verse 12, verse 15 to, um, nope, that's not it either. Let me think. Verse 25, that's it. Back in chapter 15, verse 25, he said, the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. David's trusting in God's mercy, even as he is suffering this way. David's hoping that what he will experience is the same thing that, uh, that Balaam experienced when he tried to curse the Israelites. This is a, a scene that's told us in the book of Numbers and summarized in the book of Deuteronomy. Look at verse uh, Deuteronomy 23. I, I wrote it down on the note sheet, I think. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. Well, why not? For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor and Aram Naharaim, to pronounce a curse on you. Verse 5, here's the important part. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam but turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. And, and David is, is, is hearing Shimei curse him and feeling those stones hit him and he's thinking, 
maybe because of God's love, he'll, he'll show mercy to me. He'll, he'll turn Shimei's curse into a blessing. Because you cannot control all that you want, but God does. We rely on his mercy. Our vindication, our justice is ultimately in his hands. And he treats us with greater kindness than we deserve. God's justice is absolutely perfect. It is absolutely perfect. He will restore the moral order that we have broken because of our sin. So justice will be done. But God's people, we get more than perfect justice. We get God's mercy. God's kindness that extends beyond justice. You know, one of the re- reasons that your relationships can become so troubling is because we d- you default to fairness. We think about fairness. That's not fair, right? Of all the phrases that siblings in arguments say most often, that's not fair is in the top ten. It's mine. That's in the list too, right? I had it first. Okay, we'll, we'll stop. I could go on. That's not fair. We want everything to be fair. If you hit me, I'll hit you back. If you insult me, I'll insult you back. If you hurt me, I can shut you out with silence so cold that it will make your ears bleed and that will be fair. But see, followers of Jesus, we want something different than fairness. We want God to accomplish his purposes and we want to welcome his mercy. Did you think about the conflicts that you're involved in with those vexing people? More so than wanting justice or more so than wanting to be vindicated. Can you think? My, my chief goal in this situation is for God to accomplish his purposes and for mercy to be on display. Think about how that would change the conflicts that you have with people. Of course, we're about to celebrate this morning the fountain of that mercy. It's foreshadowed in, the, in this passage. The original readers of Second Samuel were in exile themselves and they looked back on David's exile and thought about God working in David and maybe he can work in their lives too. Well, the writers of the Gospels looked back on this story too and they saw in David's exile a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. A.W. Pink wrote, wrote about this. David and, and the Lord Jesus in, in 2 Samuel 16, Jesus at the end of the Gospels, both of them are walking the same paths. Jesus is arrested in this garden that David's just been walking through, the Mount of Olives. David was betrayed by Ahithophel. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Ahithophel, when he realized his plot was not going to work, he hung himself. Judas, out of remorse, hung himself. David was cursed and abused by Shimei. The Lord Jesus was cursed by those who witnessed his crucifixion. David left the city. Jesus walked out of the city. There's a key difference, of course, in those stories, right? David is walking this own path as a consequence for his sins, his rebellion against God. And Jesus, at the end of the Gospels, walked that path, not for his own sins, but for our sins. So that all who turned to him could find mercy and forgiveness and life. That's the mercy that we're going to mark through the Lord's Supper in a few moments. It's the mercy that we rely on too. It's the mercy that we rely on now. It's the mercy that we rely on today. It's the mercy that we turn to when those people around us vex us so. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning 
And we thank you for this story that you told us, this event, this writing down of the history of David that we have for us to read and ponder. You want us to read it and understand your great working in David's life, and then you want us to admire and then imitate David's confidence in you. Lord, this morning, I know everybody in this room has been vexed, antagonized, hurt by someone. Father, I pray that you would direct our minds and thoughts. Some some of us, now we're thinking about conflict, a conflict that we're involved in. I pray, Father, that you would move us to think about your purposes and what you're working out in those hard situations. And Lord, I pray that you would show mercy to us all. Mercy to those who offend. Mercy to those who are offended. Father, we, we don't want what's fair. We want what is good as you have said it. So control the things that we say and the things that we do when we are vexed because of our great confidence in you. You are the almighty God You work out everything according to the counsel of your will. Help us to rest in that, we pray in Christ's name, saying, Amen. Please stand and we'll sing the power of the cross together. Oh. 